Now the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Monday, June 26th, 2023. Seven minutes past the hour. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Our producer is Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up this hour of the Federal Drive, DOD dishes out its latest batch of awards for unique research projects. Plus, it's no small task to resettle the children flowing past the nation's borders. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, as the Defense Department looks to its future force levels, continuing problems with recruitment means it has to focus more than ever on retention. Here to tell us about some of the retention efforts, Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. Alexandra, how are we today? Great, thanks, Eric. All right, so what is DOD's strategy for better retention? Well, they've got a whole lot of things cooking on that. One of the things is career options. They're they're creating specific career paths for specialists. They're allowing people to switch paths halfway through their careers, trying to give them more flexibility so that instead of saying, well, I'm finished with what I'm doing, I'm going to move into a civilian career, they're willing to stay on and do something maybe new in the military. The other issue is lifestyle issues, and the, the DOD has done a lot to try and work with those issues. The saying they have is recruit the soldier and retain the family. And so what they're trying to do is make life a little bit easier for military families. Here's Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Man power and reserve affairs, Alex Wagner. We're about 90% retention at key intervals uh, between officers and enlisted in the Department of the Air Force. And what does that tell us? That tells us that once people join, they want to stay. But increasingly, we are in competition with the private sector. We've got to be an employer of choice. And that's not only an employer of choice for the member, but also for their dependents. And so All of these quality of life issues are not tangential to our mission. And Alex Wagner, Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Manpower and Reserve Affairs. And so what are the services doing to make career paths more attractive to people? They're allowing you to stay in one career if you don't want to be a line officer in some cases. So if you're maybe a cybersecurity expert, you can stay as a cybersecurity expert and not have to go and compete with line officers and go into a different career area. Another thing they're doing is if you enlist and you have a certain specialty and after you finish your first term of enlistment, you think, well, I didn't really like that. I'd like to try something new. In some cases, you're going to be able to try a whole new specialty. And then there's education. All of the services are really pushing education. They're offering money to go to universities for degrees. They're also doing a lot of certification programs. And then they've got some in-house education programs as well. Here's Navy Assistant Secretary for Manpower, Franklin Parker. Another thing that we feel very strongly about, and I know our secretary really has championed, is the Naval Community College, and that's something we stood up over the past year. And it's it's geared specifically towards our enlisted service members, and it allows them the opportunity to get associate's degrees, but also professional credentials in other areas that are specific to to, to their warfighting duties that will help them operationally be better warfighters, but at the same time will help provide them with skills and credentials that will help support and advance them throughout their careers as well. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Alexandra Lore, and you mentioned those lifestyle issues, Alexandra. What about the lifestyle issues is the military trying to capitalize on? 
There are a lot of things that have to do with housing and child care and where you live. Child care has really been a big issue for the military. They've been starting to allocate money to improve it, uh, particularly for new installations. All the services are getting new child care facilities and they're giving more money to child care workers. But even when they do that, they're having trouble staffing. They they just can't get enough people to work in military child care centers. So the Secretary of Defense said they'd offer workers 50% discount on tuition for their first child if you work in a child care center, and then 25% for the next child. But the Air Force went even further. Here's Alex Wagner. I wanted to see if those types of programs, those incentive programs, uh, enhance access to family child care homes and recruiting and retention incentives made a difference. And I'm pleased to report that they have. Last year at this time, our uh, staffing was at 65%. And right before I came over here, the numbers I got was we've moved the needle to 76%. So these things are making a difference. All right. And diversity is top of the list for a lot of agencies and military components. Uh, What are the military components that you heard from? What are they doing to make their ranks more diverse? That's one of the issues they really talk a lot about, because obviously, if they have recruiting problems, they want to make sure everyone feels like there's a place for them in the military. And so there have been a couple initiatives that have come up recently. The Army started a women's initiative team that specifically promotes issues surrounding female service members. It looks at career choices, availability of promotions, health care, all the kind of things that women service members might be concerned about. And then all of the service chiefs have spoken out about how much stronger diversity makes their services. In one study, if you had a diverse team, they were actually across the board more successful than a team that was more homogenous. And from a family perspective, Alex Wagner says they need to make sure that families are treated well and protected from bigotry in their home environments. Here's what he had to say about it. Part of our responsibility is not only taking care of the member, but taking care of their entire family. When I hear stories of racism in schools, when I get requests, when I'm forced to move families from installations because their school will do nothing when their LGBT kid is being bullied. That worries me because that's distracting from the mission. That's detracting from our readiness. All right. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr, thank you so much for reporting on this. Thanks very much, Eric. You can find more of Alexandra's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, it's no small task to resettle the children flowing past the nation's borders. It's The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Homeland Security is not the only department dealing with an ongoing border crisis. Health and Human Services has a big job, too. Its Office of Refugee Resettlement has struggled with the task of making sure unaccompanied children are properly taken care of. It's got a mixed record. Federal News Network's Tom Temin got more from HHS Assistant Regional Inspector General Nancy Bibb. So tell us, just to start with, the Office of Refugee Resettlement. Where does it live in HHS and what is it supposed to be doing? 
That's a really good question. So the Office of Refugee Resettlement is a program office that is within the administration for children and families within HHS. And it manages a variety of different programs. So I can provide you a little bit more background on the Office of Refugee Resettlement as it pertains to the Unaccompanied Children's Program, which is what ties to our audit report. Sure. So they they make sure that these children that come by whatever means, they get them settled in places that are safe? Yes. In the Unaccompanied Children's Program, ORR is responsible for the care and the placement of unaccompanied children that have no lawful immigration status in the United States. And what do they specifically do? How do the children come into the custody of that office in the first place? And then what do they do when they do get custody of these children? So children are typically referred to ORR's care from the Department of Homeland Security. And once the children are referred to ORR's care, and ORR I'm referring to the Office of Refugee Resettlement, they actually fund residential care providers that are providing the temporary housing and other services to unaccompanied children that are within their custody. So these care providers provide a variety of different services, including health care, socialization, recreation, mental health services, to name a few. And so these children remain in ORs care and custody until they are released to a parent or other sponsor within the United States. Some children may also choose to be repatriated to their home country. Um, They may obtain legal status in the United States or turn 18 years old, which at that point in time, they're transferred back to the custody of DHS. The Office of Refugee Resettlement and Accompanied Children's Program primarily has responsibility for the care of these children as long as they're within their custody. And safe to say they have experienced a surge in the number of children they have to deal with? There have been periods in time where there have been surges of children that are referred to their care, yes. All right. So what were you looking for in doing this audit of their operations then? What were you trying to find out here? So our audit examined whether or not ORR was following its policies and procedures and guidance, both when making initial placement decisions for unaccompanied children and also when transferring children between those their care provider facilities. Additionally, as a part of this audit, we determined whether or not ORR was conducting adequate oversight of the transfers of unaccompanied children. So just to provide a little bit more context in regards to what an initial placement is, that is when ORR intake staff determines the appropriate care provider facility to provide the care for the child in a least restrictive setting that's going to meet the child's needs when they are referred from the Department of Homeland Security into ORR's care. And when we're talking about these subsequent transfer placements, We're talking about transfers and when a child is moved between one ORR care provider facility and another ORR care provider facility. Got it. And they do have statutory limits on how long they can take to do this. And there are statutory requirements for the paperwork and documentation that goes along with all of these transfers, correct? 
There are some statutory requirements tied to time limits between transferring care between Department of Homeland Security and ORR custody. And then ORR has their policy guide and internal policies and procedures that give guidance on the transfer process between care provider facilities. And those guidance and policy documents are what we used in conducting our audit. And what did you find? So we had a variety of different findings in our related to our audit. First, I'll address the findings that we had related to initial placements. And so in our review, just a little bit of background, we did a statistical sample of 70 initial placements mm -hmm. and looked at whether or not OR made an appropriate decision for the care provider facility for that child to be placed in. And in that, we found that OR did make appropriate placement decisions. However, those initial placement decisions did not always happen within 24 hours during influx periods. And so that 24 hours is an ORR policy guidance. The, the intakes team is required to make that placement decision within 24 hours. Sure. So that means that children are waiting around somewhere where it's not optimal for them until this placement takes place. And 24 hours, that's a long time. Some of these children are very young, right? Some of the children placed into ORR's custody are very young, yes. All right. We're speaking with Nancy Bibb. She's Assistant Regional Inspector General for Health and Human Services. And you also found that sometimes the paperwork and documentation of what was going on wasn't quite up to snuff also. Yes, you're correct. We found we did a little bit of looking at initial placements for children that had specific concerns or needs. So they went into a restrictive placement. And a restrictive placement is a care provider that just has a little bit more, has a different set of guidelines rather than the basic shelter environment. And so we did find that the intakes placement checklist was not always completed accurately. And according to ORR, the issues that we found within initial placements were one tied to, you know, the number of referrals varying greatly between normal operations and during an influx and capacity issues at the care provider facilities, just having enough space. And in but what about having enough staff? Yes. Additionally, we found that the ORR contracted intake specialist positions were not always fully staffed during our audit period. And these are the individuals that are actually making that placement decision to determine which care provider facility a child would be placed in. All right. So they have issues, space and staff and dealing with surges. What were your recommendations? So, in regards to that issue, our recommendation was for ORR to strengthen the oversight of their initial placements and ensure that that placement decision is made within 24 hours of each referral. And we also recommended that ORR ensure that the documentation is completed for those children with special needs or concerns. And HHS and the ORR pretty much accepted those recommendations? ORR and the Administration for Children and Families did concur with our recommendations in our report and in their response provided us with some corrective actions that they plan to take. And in the meantime, they have hired more intake specialists, correct? I cannot speak to whether or not they have hired any additional intake specialists at this point in time. We have not gone back and reassessed that. 
Okay. I'm just reading in the report. They said they did. They told you they did, but you have to verify that, in other words. Yes. As part of our audit follow-up procedures, ACF will provide us with a final management determination, and we will then look to determine whether or not we feel that the recommendations were implemented from the report, and we'll look at those corrective actions at that point in time. Nancy Bibb is an Assistant Regional Inspector General for the Health and Human Services Department. We'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, Capitol Hill monitors enter a wait-and-see period. But first, DOD dishes out its latest batch of awards for unique research projects. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Last month, the Defense Department announced $18 million in awards for the Defense Established Program to Stimulate Competitive Research, or DEP score program, to 28 academic teams. The teams hail from all parts of the country, and the competition aims to help introduce potential researchers to DOD's unique research challenges and supportive research ecosystem. To find out more about how it works, I got the chance to talk to Dr. Bindu Nair, Director of DOD's Basic Research Office, and DEP score Program Manager, Dr. Jennifer Becker. You'll hear from Dr. Nair first. One of our goals in the department in general is to make sure that we're getting the most creative ideas for technology development and seeding the most creative ideas for technology development across the country, right? We want to make sure that we're getting the best of the brains that are out there and, and we're pulling them in to answering questions that are uh, that we believe in the long run is going to be support the defense mission. So one way to do that, so one of the things that we do is academic outreach in general. We have a very strong basic research program portfolio whose goal it is to make sure that we are tapping the latest science out there, understanding it, being involved in it, um, and also steering the direction of it. DEP score was set up because one of the questions that Congress asked us is, are you in fact making sure that you get access to all ideas wherever they come from, especially because a lot of times the the creativity and the ability of the department to to work with academics is based on some very close relationships with these uh, teams of researchers in academia and the department, the program officers in the department that are asking the questions. And so, you know, this is a, this can be a labor intensive activity. And so, you know, the question was, are you, are you making sure that all 50 states and territories are, are appropriately represented within DOD? And Congress really wanted us to make sure that we are doing outreach across the board, as well as helping us create a targeted program to make sure that in addition to outreach, we are doing um, a targeted programming to some of those states that perhaps traditionally haven't received as much in the way of DOD funding in their research and uh, development enterprise. So they gave us a formula for what state should be DEP score eligible. And then we run competitions associated with those activities that is only open to those states. But in addition to the actual DEP score program, the other thing that we do, or, or the competitions, the other thing we do is really targeted outreach to those states. Go out and visit, you know, like we've been out to visit schools that haven't had a lot of DOD funding 
bring a bunch of program officers with us so they can start building those relationships and really try to communicate how DOD works so that we can get more and more good proposals in from across the country. Very, very highly important to um, our Undersecretary, the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering, the Honorable Heidi Shu. She has been very clear with me that her goal is to make sure we tap into every scintilla of creativity, um, scientific creativity that the country has to offer. And, and this is certainly one of the programs that we use to do that. So that's kind of the program in a nutshell. We can talk about the specifics of the program, but that's really what we're trying to do. And we're well on board with what Congress has asked us to do. Got it. And yeah, Dr. Becker, if uh, if I can turn to you now, since you're the manager of this uh, of this program, how's it working out there actually on the front lines of getting these folks involved uh, in the far reaches of uh, the U.S.? Yeah, I, I think it's going really well. We've held quite a few outreach events, as Dr. Nair has mentioned. In the past year, we've been to West Virginia, South Dakota. Um, we were just out in Montana. So really targeting some areas where we've, we haven't seen a lot of proposals and submissions across the different um, basic research programs. So we're getting out there. We are talking to academic researchers. We're taking our program officers with us to start to build those, start to develop those conversations and build connections. And we're starting to see more and more proposals from those states. So it's very exciting. And in your interactions with these folks and these researchers, what has been the response when you actually make initial contact with them or when you first get to work with them? I think many of them are surprised that the DOD invests as much as we do in truly fundamental basic research. Our program officers, our basic research program officers, are very engaged and they love to be involved and to drive the science in new directions for the DOD. And I think the academic community is sometimes very surprised by that. Add along to that, I would just sort of say, you know, I think most academics know how to write proposals to other agencies, other funding agencies. I think uh, learning how successful people have written proposals and write proposals to DOD, that I think is one of the most eye-opening things for them. And you all, I get, and through programs like this, you're trying to serve as a little bit of a bridge or a catalyst for helping folks write, get, get the lingo down, right? <laughs> Correct. Get the lingo down. And also, yeah, get the lingo down. Make sure that they understand that. So we have, you know, Depth Score is one of those programs that has a call, right? Like everybody by such and such a date, you have to have your white paper in. We have other programs like that. But we have a very large number of DOD programs that are open on a rolling basis. And how do you engage that? You know, So we try to teach people more about the DOD writ large than just the depth score program. Got it. And so let's get into the nitty gritty. And we've talked about research from a wider perspective, but specifically, what kind of research uh, are you all funding this go around and what were what were in those white papers that are have been selected? So I think... Um, you know, I will ask Jen to maybe walk you through the several projects that we have selected this year and, and help you uh, with the titles and, and sort of what they are. I think the key to know is that we have a bunch of different program managers across the department. And what we do in the depth core program, because we can't handle, given the, the size of the program, we can't handle all of them, right? We pick a few program managers each year. We take their topics and those become the depth score topics for that year. 
that means that if your topic doesn't or your program manager is not in this year's proposal, then it will that your topic may show up next year. So just because something is not a depth score program topic doesn't mean that it is not important to the DoD. It's just based on how we've managed how we are managing the the stuff that comes in. Um, so what you'll hear is uh, projects based on different program managers' desires. They did the selections. We provided general guidance on what those selection criteria should be. And maybe Jen, you can walk them through what they are. Yes, please do, Jen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for the for the FY22 research collaboration competition, we had 13 different topics and they spanned anywhere from unsteady aerodynamics and turbulent flows. We had topics in electronics, electrochemistry, materials-based topics, atomic and molecular physics, and biological soft solid mechanics as well as mathematical optimization. So quite the range of different topics that were available uh, in the FY22 funding opportunity announcement. And then the the proposal or yeah, the projects that we selected, I mean the the list has been published and we can we can provide that as well. But again, they are projects that are directly responsive to those topics that were in that funding opportunity announcement and span across those areas, different basic research um, addressing the challenges that were outlined by those program officers. Yeah, and I imagine they're involved in the process of who gets selected <laughs> since they're the ones who name the problems, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So depth score follows a peer review model like many of our DOD basic research programs do. So program officers across the DOD are involved in the review and selection of those proposals that are submitted. Great. And they're reviewed on the basis of technical merit, qualifications of the PI, and relevance to DOD. All right. And so what is the next step? They got to actually do the research, I imagine, and, and uh, they'll be uh, fairly compensated for them. But, you know, have you seen that research be utilized immediately or is it just, you know, it's, it's, it's added to the mountains and mountains of data that DOD has on these topics? Yeah. So... The projects are three-year projects. So the first round of depth score that we funded back in 2019 are just finishing. So we're starting to see the results from them. And there are different methods, different mechanisms to use those results. Um, sometimes our program officers work very closely with these um, investigators and connect them with DOD labs. And we see transition of results that way. Sometimes the, the research results open up brand new areas of basic research to pursue, and the result will be another basic research grant to investigate a slightly new area. Um, so we're starting to see those results come through now. Dr. Nair, I'll give you the last word on how this transfixes to the uh, Pentagon's research wing's overall mission of always bringing compelling research to the le defense leaders who need it. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, this is both the opportunity and the challenge of basic research, right? And this is not just depth score. Depth score is is just a, an instantiation of the way we think about basic research. And so everything about depth score program, we pull, we try to teach people how we want to do basic research. And it can take time, right? It can take time for stuff to move from basic research to a product, but we know that if we don't do basic research, we're not connected properly into the community of scholars that are thinking about brand new ways. And so then we're going to be surprised by ways that um, 
that that science is moving. So if you have a huge program lined up, right, and this is how we're going to do technology development, if you're not paying attention to the disruptions in science at the very early end, you can make some huge mistakes, costly mistakes in that in, in that technology development. You can also miss opportunities, and uh, and so that's part of what we are trying to make sure we do. We don't need every basic research program to be successful. In fact, if we pick only basic research programs that are going to be successful, we're probably not taking enough risk. But what we do want to do is pick, um, be able to pick those winners in addition to a bunch of other stuff, right? That is that is just going to slowly move the field forward. We want to pick the stuff that will give us that next, you know, GPS. We will give us the next internet. Will give us the next mRNA vaccine because all of that comes from our basic research investment because it just changes the way that people are doing science and we want to be we want to be there right at the instantiation of that which we've done in several fields like quantum and photonics we are right there as the new ideas are being created so we can very quickly move them in ways sometimes uh sometimes to classified or otherwise unaccessible programs and sometimes just to keep as jen said to keep it growing in the public sphere because it's necessary to do so that's dr bindu nair director of dod's basic research office and you also heard from dr jennifer becker who is depth score program manager at dod you can find this interview at our website at federalnewsnetwork.com federal drive subscribe to the federal drive wherever you get your podcasts still to come on federal news network capitol hill monitors enter a wait and see period it's the federal drive with tom temen on federal news network i'm eric white filling in for tom Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Congress has gone into a two-week recess. However, the entirety of the debt ceiling debate took up a lot of time that could have been used to address other confirmations and hearings that need to get done. So that means it's going to be a busy summer once members return. To discuss what's on tap, we turn to Bloomberg government's Lauren Duggan. Well, I think if you look off the floor, you see the development of some of the key pieces of legislation that need to happen by both September 30th and the end of the year. One of the big debates, obviously, is always government funding. And we've seen a lot of action in both the House and Senate appropriations committees, which was allowed to move forward after the debt limit bill. But we see this divergence happening that we could you know, talk about some more. But the two chambers are heading kind of in different paths right now, which could be tricky as the year goes on. We've also seen a lot of action this week or last week on the defense authorization bill, which is another big measure that sets policy for the Pentagon. And then we're starting to see more discussion about things like the farm bill and the FAA. So lawmakers are really looking at these deadline driven things and saying, oh, we only have so much time left to to do these with breaks like the two week one that we're in right now um, and a lot to get done before the end of the year. Yeah, it seems like after the debt limit was finally put aside and now folks are finally getting back to business and they're like, oh, whoa, that really did take way too long. <laughs> yes, definitely. That that affected the schedule and they're trying to do a lot more in the compressed schedule they have. But there's still a lot of big questions hanging over the debt limit deal resolved one big matter, but left a lot of question marks for Congress to fill in. There are also a ton of nominees that are up for Senate confirmation. And with nominations, we always get the folks who are threatening to block those nominations. What are some of the top level ones that you have heard from that camp? 
Well, we've seen a lot of judicial nominees process this year, obviously, and that will continue as as they get them from the White House, have the hearings and push those through. Um, we also see a lot of deputy secretary level ones moving, including one for the agriculture department right when we get back from the break. But some of the big ones outstanding, there's still no labor secretary. Julie Sue's nomination feels like it's still in limbo. Um, we'll be waiting to see when they get back if there's going to be enough support to move that forward. The question marks there are around Democrats still, which is, you know, usually we talk about Republicans. Republicans opposing. But um, in this case, it's been, does she have enough Democratic support to move forward? And then obviously, military nominees have been blocked by Tommy Tuberville, who's unhappy about the Pentagon's policies around abortion and has held up most of the senior positions there. And there are some key ones that obviously need to be processed in the coming weeks. So that is a, a lot of floor activity that needs to happen on those. And you have to pepper in some of these legislative questions as well. But that's been one of the Senate's top jobs is confirming people that will continue. But there's going to be competing priorities priorities as well when they come back. Speaking of Senate activity and House activity, you mentioned the divergence in spending measures. What can you tell me on where the Senate stands and where the House stands? Obviously, two differing opinions on major spending bills. Well, there seems to be agreement on defense spending. If you'll remember back to the debt limit deal, they agreed on spending caps, defense, non-defense. The defense side is pretty agreed upon, but the non-defense side is where there's going to be some divergence. Um, for one thing, the allocations that the House and Senate committees have adopted diverge. The Senate stuck to the amount in the caps deal. The House is going lower, saying that was a ceiling, not a floor. Um, and then beyond that, the Senate is also talking about, do we need to do supplementals or find other ways to pump money into it? Um, and one thing they're going to do is try to rescind money from elsewhere and use that to kind of offset what's in the bill. So a lot to still happen there. And then beyond funding, there are the policy writers that come up here. Republicans are writing the bills in the House. Democrats are largely writing them in the Senate, though getting bipartisan support from their Republican colleagues. So that's the other clash that'll happen once you figure out how much to fund. What policy writers do you bring back? Which do you drop? Which new ones do you add? There's a lot going to happen there. And then on the authorization side as well, some of those same dynamics about policy writers are going to creep into that. Even if the top line spending is fairly similar, there's still a lot of details to work out in a bill like that. All right. And aside from the policy things, there were a lot of political developments that occurred uh, in Congress this week. Uh, What is censoring and what does that mean for Adam Schiff? (laughs) Well, Adam Schiff uh, on round two, because they had tried the week before to do this, but they finally got enough Republicans to support the resolution censuring him. The immediate punishment was to come down to the floor of the House and basically be read the resolution by Speaker Kevin McCarthy. But it also opened up an investigation that'll start to happen now into him. And we'll see if there's any follow up to that or further punishment. Um, We also saw last week a vote by the House to refer an impeachment resolution back to committees. So Homeland Security and Judiciary looking into Joe Biden and his border policies and whether those amount to high crime or misdemeanor. So that's still going to come. And then there are other impeachment resolutions out there that members want to pursue, whether it's FBI Director Ray or or other officials. Um, Joe Biden, obviously, one of them as well. So I think we could see more of this. Alejandro Mayorkas, the DHS secretary, has been mentioned. So these are going to be in the background. There is some dispute among Republicans about whether this is the right way to go about it. Should they go through committee investigations? So we'll see that as well. And then there is still out there both the federal case against George Santos and then an ethics investigation into him as well. So a lot happening there on the investigative front, both 
on the floor, but mostly in committees that we may not see for a little bit. Yeah, the impeachment of cabinet secretaries is a, a thing that interests me because it's not one that you hear about a lot. Mostly they they try to just go for the top dog. <laughs> but um, what can you tell me? Uh, is that process any different or is it just basically the same thing? You just have to have the votes uh, lined up. You have to have the votes lined up. Um, you know, obviously, in this case, you need a simple majority in the House. If you can get all the Republicans on side and they say yes, that would create a trial over in the Senate. It's a little rarer to see, as you said, the cabinet secretaries, but not completely unprecedented. We've seen it for the president many times in recent years. And we've seen, you know, you can do the same thing to a federal judge, although that tends to be handled a little bit differently because usually those cases are cut and dry. And, you know, there's some pretty in your face wrongdoing there. Um, so we'll, we'll see what's happening with those cases. If they get to the floor for a vote and then if there's a Senate trial, obviously we'll have to watch that very closely as well. And that would also take away from Senate floor time to do other things because those trials can be um, pretty laborious and time consuming as you go through whatever evidence the House presents. All right. And anything else to keep an eye on as we head into this recess on you know what folks are doing in their districts or anybody else going to be preparing for any other sort of hearings that are coming up? I mean, I think all these hearings are, are going to fire back up once they're back in town. We know that James Comer has a lot of different investigations he'd like to do. Jim Jordan, who's both the judiciary chair and this weaponization of government subcommittee chair, has some topics there. We saw Ways and Means do some things around the Hunter Biden tax case and some whistleblowers, as they described them, who were brought into a closed meeting. So the investigative wheels are going to turn. They're still going to bring cabinet officials in talking about lots of different issues. So it's going to be another busy hearing season in this July session as these bills also continue to move forward. All right. And a lot of uh, watching for you of Congress. <laughs> Absolutely. Keeps us busy. Yep. Lauren Duggan from Bloomberg Government. Thank you as always. Thank you. And you can find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. 57 past the hour. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom.